right, it was a little while ago that I realized that I was failing as a father, failing as a husband, because we have not been doing devotions or praying together as a family. So we brought out the Bible one night and was appropriately looking at Genesis 4 and Cain and Abel and how to be our brother's keeper. And as we came to the passage about being our brother's keeper, I responded to the the children by saying, you know what? Reading the Bible is not always easy, is it? Because it shows us how bad we are. But then again, seeing how bad we are is a good thing. And you know why that is? I asked them and I said, David, do you know why that is? And David responds by saying, so that we don't continue to be bad. And then it hit me. How deeply ingrained into our natures is Pharisaical religion? David doesn't get it yet, do we? The Christian life is not about messing up and then learning how to improve so that we don't mess up again. The Christian life is about learning how much we need Jesus. And this got me thinking, if I'm, what am I doing to teach and model to my children Pharisee religion. And then this led me to another question. What would it be like to sit under the teaching of the Pharisees? What would their view of God be like? What would their view of the Christian life be like? And there are just three quick verses I want to just look at real quick. Mark 7, 6. Jesus says concerning the Pharisees, quoting Isaiah. He says, Isaiah's prophecy is true concerning these people. These people honor me with their lips, yet their hearts are far from me. Matthew 23, before Jesus goes in and fully exposes and brings his harshest criticism to the Pharisees, he says this, do not do as they do, but do what they say. In other words, what they're telling others to do is not the way they live. And then John 5, 39, Jesus says to them, you search the scriptures because you think in them And by following them, you have eternal life. But it is these that bear witness of me. So how do you sum it up this way? They viewed the Bible as a roadmap that if I follow this roadmap, pop it out. Whoop! I got to go here. I got to go there. Got to go there in order to get here. When the Bible is a roadmap viewed to show you how to live, the emphasis is on your behavior. The emphasis is on your outward appearance. When it's viewed this way, then how I live becomes the focus. What should I do? What should I not do? What should others do? What should others not do? The Bible becomes a topical list of do's and don'ts, rules and regulations and standards that you must follow. And when the Christian life is reduced to these rules and regulations, the Christian and his performance becomes the focus. So I have two word pictures I want to leave with you about what it would be like to sit under pharisaical teaching. When we view the Bible as a roadmap that shows us how to live to get eternal life, then we use the Bible as a roadmap on how to live to get eternal life. When the Bible becomes a roadmap that we must follow in order to arrive at a final destination, then God's commands, His rules, His regulations, these things become the mile markers that I have to reach first in order to get there. And then how do we use the mile markers? We use them to see how far we've come 
And then we use them to see how far we have yet to go. These mile markers become the marks of how we're doing in the Christian life, whether poorly or whether we're doing well. Well, what happens if you blow a tire on this trip? What happens if you get slowed down? What happens if you have to stop? Then what would a Pharisee do? The Pharisee would pull out his instruction manual, the Bible, and look at it to see how to change and fix the tire. And once he's done fixing the tire, he's got a speed, doesn't he? Because he's been slowed down, now I've got to go faster. And while they're going faster, they're whizzing by all these cars and they can't see who's in the car. They can't see what's going on in that car because all they're concerned about is reaching their final destination. Now, if that word picture doesn't do it for you, how about this one? When the Christian life is all about following the roadmap to reach a final destination, then my Christian walk takes center stage and the spotlight shines on my behavior. <laughs> when I'm on stage and the spotlight is on my behavior, what have I become? An actor, a performer. Someone who knows that they're not something, but is portraying to convince others that they are. An actor plays a part. An actor practices his lines. He polishes his speech and his body movements. He lives to perform in public in order to get the applause. Well done. Well done. And he longs to stay and remain in the spotlight. So what would it be like to sit under the Pharisees teaching? You would be more concerned about looking like a Christian than living like a Christian. It caused you to be self-focused where you're only concerned about yourself. You're only concerned about your walk, how far you walked, where you walked. And what ends up happening is you forget how you entered in the first place. It would cause you to be self-reliant, where you would rely on your own power, rely on your own abilities, and live independently from relying on Jesus. It would cause you to be self-exalting, where you're very concerned about your performance and how others perceive you, and yet very critical of others' performance because of how you perceive them. You would take pride in what you do for God while pronouncing judgment upon others for what they fail to do for God. So what would one's view of God be like under this teaching? If it's all about myself, if it's all about my performance, if it's all about keeping the rules, then God must be a critical, cruel taskmaster, a punisher of poor performance. A high and holy God who needs my service in order to lift up others to live according to his standards and then beat them down when they don't. This God would not be compassionate towards failure or weakness and neither would you. This God would be ungracious and unmerciful and so would you. How deeply embedded into our thoughts is the view that God is more wrathful than he is merciful. How deeply embedded into our thoughts is the view that God loves to hand out punishment rather than hold out grace. 
after 11 years of doing ministry, I've come to two conclusions. People are more sinful and messed up than anybody else really knows. And second, people are more afraid of God and being found out by others than anybody really knows. If this wasn't so, then how can it be that all of us struggle deeply with sin and nobody really knows the extent of it, not even our spouses nor our children? Sure, they know some of it, but only what we want them to know. But do they know the full darkness of it? Do they know the full scope of it in our lives? If this wasn't true, how can it be that everybody in this room thinks everybody else is doing better than they are spiritually? If this wasn't true, how can it be that we're shocked at our own sin and then shocked at other sin and we pretend that we're doing better than we really are? If this wasn't true, how can it be that we don't want to associate with people that make us feel uncomfortable? That we judge, we outcast, we reject others when we do the same things. How can it be that we isolate ourselves from others and we knowingly pretend that we don't need anybody else? How can it be that we're more concerned about pleasing God than we are about pleasing others? And we're so afraid of God that we don't want to face our sins, so we ignore it, we hide from it, or we distract ourselves from even having to think about it. How can all these things be? Answer, because we're all Pharisees. And we have all sat under the teachings of Pharisees. Leading us all to struggle to believe that God is full of grace, full of mercy, and abounding in loyal love. So if there's one thing I want you to know more than anything else throughout the course of this sermon, one thing I want to convince you of more than anything else, one thing I want you to trust in and to believe in more than anything else is Exodus 34. Turn there, verses 6 and 7. Moses has been up on the mountain for 40 days receiving from God the law which he was to give to the people. But while he's up there, Israel gets impatient. And they're like, where is this Moses character? What happened to him? And where's God? So they fashion themselves the image of God that they want God to be in. A calf, a golden calf. And they sin greatly by bowing down and worshiping it. And what's interesting is that while Moses is up here and the people are down here doing this, God tells Moses what's going on down there. And then God says, Moses, I'm going to wipe them out. I am going to wipe them out. Moses intercedes for them and he pleads, God, show me your glory. Moses wants to see the glory of God, but he says, I want to see your face, Moses or God. And God says to Moses, no one can see my face and live. So what does God do? God takes Moses, places him in a cleft of a rock, puts his hand over Moses and walks by. So Moses doesn't see God's face. He hears a sermon which communicates and displays God's glorious character. And that sermon is verses 6 and 7. Yahweh, Yahweh, 
compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding. The word abounding is overflowing. It spills over. He abounds and spills over in loyal love and truth. He keeps his loyal love for thousands who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin. And yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Look at the context of what's going on here. God's glory is seen in his character. What he reveals to Moses is not that he is a cruel law giving taskmaster who wants to punish for breaking the rules. God's glory is seen in the fact that he is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding and overflowing with loyal love and truth to thousands upon thousands because he forgives sin and yet punishes it. How can God be both gracious and yet punish the guilty at the same time? Answer, because the glory of God is most fully revealed in his face. Moses only saw God's back. But in our text this morning, a sinful woman is going to see the face of God. Our text, Luke chapter 7, gives us a picture of the difference between looking like a Christian and living like one. It's going to compare the actions of a Pharisee and a prostitute. Now, it's not known for sure if she was a prostitute, but as we read it, we're going to understand she's got a reputation. So it's assumed that she's a prostitute. And it's going to reveal who is real and who is acting And what we're going to see is that you can fake godliness towards Jesus, but you cannot fake love for Jesus. Because love for Jesus is seen when our actions speak louder than our words. So would you stand for the reading and hearing of God's message? Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. Don't worry, I know that was a long introduction, but we will get through it. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and he took his place at the table, which is the place of honor. So he's at the head. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. When she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet, she began to weep. And then she began to wet his feet with her tears and she wiped them with the hair on her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had been invited, who had invited him, saw this, said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay the debt, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which one will love him more? And Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? 
I entered your house and you gave no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with oil. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this? Who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Question. Is your love for Jesus evident with your lips or with your life this morning? Who deserves the Oscar in this story for best actor? Simon or the woman? Now, there's too much to cover and there's not enough time to cover it. So all I want to do is I want to give the four movements that go on in this story. The first movement I have entitled a disturbing dinner and it's found in verses 36 to 38. Notice Jesus is invited by a Pharisee to have dinner at his house. But here's what I want to quickly argue. The reason why this Pharisee is inviting Jesus is because he's investigating to find out who he is. In chapter seven, the context is very key. Chapter 7, it begins by Jesus healing a centurion servant. And then Jesus goes on to a different town called Nain and his disciples and a great crowd. There's a funeral procession that goes by and Jesus raises somebody from the dead. And there are many people there who witness this. And so there's a lot of excitement about what goes on. Look at verses 16 and 17. Because look at what they begin to wonder. A great prophet has arisen among us. God has visited his, has visited his people. Could this be the prophet? Now, here's Simon inviting Jesus to eat with him. Because he doesn't think he is a prophet, let alone the prophet that Moses wrote about in Deuteronomy 18. His suspicion becomes apparent as they're reclining at the table. Now, just so you understand, if you're right handed, obviously, that's what you're going to use to eat. The way that they would recline at the table is that they would lie down. So he Jesus would be on his left arm like this and his feet are back behind him. And so this woman, this sinful woman comes in and immediately goes to his feet And then Simon gets a little suspicious. So imagine what's going through everybody's mind when this sinful woman walks in to a Pharisee's house with other Pharisees while they're reclining at the table eating. She's standing behind him. Her Jesus's back is to her the whole time. Now, the word used for wedding is rain shower. She is gushing tears at Jesus's feet. She lets down her hair and then she wipes and washes his feet with her hair. And then she begins to kiss his feet 
And then she anoints his feet with oil, a very expensive bottle of perfume. Now, every action that she is doing in this scene, Jesus is reclining like this, which means his back is to her while she's doing all this action at his feet. So he's facing Simon the whole time. So while she's wetting, while she's wiping, while she's kissing, while she's anointing his feet, it's all in the imperfect tense, which means this is going on for a long time. Now, let's just say for arguments, let's just say it was going on for 30 minutes. Can you imagine what everybody's thinking? But can you imagine how uncomfortable that would be? If for 30 minutes you're sitting there watching this prostitute touch Jesus, weep over Jesus, wipe his feet Kiss his feet and then anoint them with oil. And all the while, don't miss this. No one says a word. What are they thinking? They're judging. They're judging. So, second movement. There's a distracted host. Verses 39 through 43. Look at how Simon responds to this. Simon is more concerned that Jesus would allow a sinful woman to touch him, that he fails to see who Jesus really is. Ironically, verse 39, Simon doesn't say this out loud. Why is he inviting Jesus over? Is he the prophet or a prophet? I don't think so. Why? Because if he were a prophet, he'd know who this woman is. He'd know who she is, what she's done. And no prophet, no godly person would ever allow an unclean woman to do this. So Jesus exposes Simon's thoughts and proves that he is the prophet. I got something to say to you, Simon. And so Jesus tells him a story about a moneylender and two debtors. And then he asks him a question. And here's the irony. Simon answers the question correctly. With his lips, but he fails with his life. Not only is he distracted from the glory of who Jesus is, even after Jesus prophetically reveals his thoughts, but he fails to see how he has dishonored Jesus and therefore actually needs forgiveness, which leads to the third movement of the story in verses 44 through 50. A dishonored guest is honored by a dishonorable woman. Jesus now applies his story to Simon and the woman by comparing their actions. Now, just so that you know, remember, verse 36 tells us Simon invited Jesus. Which means Simon is the one who is to be hospitable to his guest. So here is Jesus sitting in the honored position, and yet he is dishonored by this man. How do we know? He's the guest of honor, and yet Simon doesn't honor him. Jesus points it out by saying, you offer no water for my feet. Now again, you wear a robe. Y'all wear this. Stand up here under these lights. It gets hot in desert regions. You wear a robe and you have sandals, no socks, and there's no concrete. It's all dirt. 
When you enter somebody's house, it's customary that you're going to have water there so that they can at least rinse off their feet. And you have a towel there and then you're going to have oil there, perfumed oil, because the musty, sweaty smell is disgusting. And then what would you do if you have a guest? What's the Jewish custom? You greet them with what? A holy kiss. Simon does none of this for Jesus. And then he points out that this woman has done it all. Simon silently judges the woman and Jesus as unclean. While believing himself to be clean and honorable to God, but in the end, his actions show that he is dishonoring God by failing to see his need to be cleansed. When Jesus applies this story to Simon, he's pointing something out. Simon, you love God little. Because you think little of your sin. And you see no need for me to forgive it. Simon is so preoccupied with himself. He is so preoccupied with his performance that he fails to see how he has not kept the law. I mean, Jesus asked the Pharisee, what is the greatest commandment? And the Pharisees even acknowledge this. What? To love the Lord and to love neighbor, for it sums it up. The Pharisees are in agreement with this. And here is Simon thinking he's keeping it but he's actually breaking it for he is not loving Jesus as God and he is not loving this woman as his neighbor. He believes he's honoring God because he follows God's law and yet his actions towards Jesus and the woman prove that he's breaking God's law. He fails to see that he owes God a debt that he cannot pay. And he fails to believe that God's gracious is God's character is gracious. And here we go. Even though he proclaims the truth with his lips, he fails with his life. His actions speak louder than his words. But so does the woman's. Fourth movement. Deep debt equals deep affection. Do you see this woman, Jesus says? Now, this struck me because the woman does not say a word throughout this whole scene. Not one word is spoken because her actions speak louder than her words. Don't miss this. This is what's so misunderstood. When we look at it, it immediately looks like Jesus forgives her because of her actions. Her actions don't cause Jesus to forgive her. She performs these actions because he has already forgiven her. Look at verse 37. When she learned that Jesus was there, she came. She's not coming to investigate and find out who he is. She already knows who he is. And when she knows he's there, she goes to see him. One commentator set me off on a very interesting rabbit trail that caused many hours to see if this was true. He said that her coming to Jesus in Luke 7 was due to her being present when Jesus preached in Matthew 11. Turn to Matthew 11. I just quickly want to deal with this. This may or may not be. We don't know for sure. 
but it's a pretty good hypothesis. What's Jesus' sermon in Matthew 11? Verse 28. Or actually, starting in verse 20. After he begins to denounce the cities where he's traveling because they won't repent. Now we come to verse 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, at the beginning of Matthew 11, look at what happens. John the Baptist sends someone to investigate to find out if Jesus is truly the Messiah. And the cities, look at verse 20, the cities that he begins to denounce, we got woe to you, Chorazon, woe to you, Bethsaida, woe to you, Tyre and Sidon, woe to you, Capernaum, verse 23. Now flip back to Luke 7. Matthew is not concerned about chronology, Jesus is, or Luke is, excuse me. Look at 7, verse 1. After he had finished all these sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered where? Capernaum. It's not for certain, but wouldn't it be interesting that Jesus, as he's in these very same cities, preached that sermon in Matthew 11, that this prostitute comes to him and finds rest? Comes to discover that his yoke is easy, unlike the Pharisees' yoke? That his burden is light. Another interesting note, which I think really proves it more than anything, is look at verses 47 through 48 of chapter 7 in Luke. The verb tense that Jesus uses here when he pronounces this is the perfect tense. Meaning she is presently and continually in a state of forgiveness because of a definite past declaration of being forgiven. So Jesus, when he declares to her that her sins have been forgiven, he's not forgiving her for the first time. He's telling her that she remains in a state of forgiveness right now. Now look at the context. Why is this important? Where is she? In a Pharisee's house. What are they doing to her? What are they thinking about her? What are they accusing her of? And Jesus says, your sins have been. And you remain and will continue to remain in a perpetual state of forgiveness. No matter what these men say and no matter how they treat you. Jesus is actually calming her fears. And can we not identify with her? How easy is it to believe that we are forgiven, but then when we're surrounded by Pharisees who judge us, who reject us, who outcast us for our sins, to really believe that they remain forgiven? That's the context of this woman coming to him She's already been forgiven and Jesus is assuring her that she remains forgiven. How do I know this? 
because Jesus' actions speak louder than his words. Look at verse 38. Where is she standing? She's standing behind Jesus when she's wetting, wiping, kissing and anointing his feet. He has his back to her while he's facing Simon. All she sees is Jesus's back while she's doing this. But look at verse 44. She sees what Moses could not. She sees God's face and lives. Jesus turns towards her and his actions reveal to her the glory of God's gracious character. The glory that shines brightly in his face. She turns, he turns to her and she sees the brightness of God's glory. And Jesus wants her to be convinced and wants her to see that he is compassionate and gracious, that he is slow to anger, that he abounds and overflows with loyal love and truth because he is faithful to keep his loyal love, even when we are unfaithful. Because he forgives and yet by no means will leave the guilty unpunished. Don't miss when Jesus turns towards the woman Who is he turning his back on? Simon. This sinful woman can look into the face of God because her sins have been forgiven. The basis of her forgiveness is not on her actions, but in the actions of Jesus. The sermon that Moses heard in Exodus 34 is most clearly seen in the face of the one who just a short time later would hang on a cross and cry out for his father's face, but only get his back. Jesus saw God's back so sinners could look full into his wonderful face. Now, there's no way around this and there's no denying this. Your view of sin, your sin, and your love for Jesus will rise or fall proportionately. There's no way around it. If your debt is not that great, then your love for Jesus won't be great. If you think you don't need Jesus, that you can do it on your own, that you have the power, you have the ability then your love for Jesus won't be great. But if your debt is unpayable, if your debt is so great, so will your love for Jesus. The actions of this woman show us what loving Jesus greatly looks like. And I just briefly want to give four things. First, our love for Jesus is a response to the great love that he has for us and the forgiveness that he gives because of his actions. She loves much. Why? Because she has been forgiven much. That's the point. Second, what does loving Jesus greatly look like? It's weeping over our sin. Who weeps like that? Who gushes tears except someone who knows the one whom they've offended? 
Someone who knows that they've turned their back on someone loving, gracious, kind, and good. Third, notice where she goes. Notice the only place she goes. To his feet. Kind of like John the Baptist when he said, I'm not even worthy to untie this man's sandals. She doesn't go to his head. She goes to his feet because he is exalted. He is greater. She, in humility, goes to his feet. She doesn't think too highly of herself that she deserves to be above him. She deserves to be below him. Coming to his feet is acknowledging his greatness and our unworthiness. Seeking to exalt him, not ourselves. Fourth, and this is the one that really hits you. What does loving Jesus greatly look like? It looks like being consumed with Jesus, not consumed with what others think. Again, when she finds out where he is, she goes to him in spite of where he is. Here is a prostitute, a woman who's outcasted by her community, condemned by her community, judged and rejected by her community, goes into the very house of the people who did this to her. Knowing what they're going to think, knowing what they're going to do, they want her out. And she knows they're going to throw her out, but she doesn't care. She walks right past them and goes right to the feet of her Lord. Because she doesn't care what they think. She's only concerned about being with Jesus. Now, for all you Pharisees out there who are right now judging your standing before God on how well or how poorly you love Jesus, do you really see this woman? Do you really see this woman? Because this woman not only shows us what loving Jesus looks like. She shows us what Jesus' love can do in us. And what it can make us. If you find yourself not weeping over your sin. Look full into his wonderful face. If you find yourself not falling at his feet because you're more concerned about your life, you're more concerned about exalting yourself, you're more concerned about thinking highly of yourself. If you find yourself not at his feet, look full into his wonderful face. If you find yourself not consumed with Jesus, but consumed with what others think of you, look full into His wonderful face. Because it is only in the face of Jesus that you will see that God is gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding and overflowing in loyal love because He forgives and punishes sin. I want to end before we look at the Lord's Supper by singing, Turn Your Eye Upon Jesus. If you don't know it, it's easy. One line. 
Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full into His wonderful face. And the things on earth will go strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. And you must drown me out. Ready? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full.